these stiff-necked people are <laughs> since we're studying the book of Numbers. I just love seeing your smiling faces. You look so great. Thank you for being a blessing. Tonight there's uh, ice cream sundaes in the chapel store. If you can afford the calories, you can go in there and it's a cool place and, and really nice to fellowship. So after church, if you want to walk around and right up here in the front, it's wide open and, and uh, Ashley would love to serve you in some way. It's great for us to be together on uh, midweek and I so love our study uh, through the book of Numbers. And uh, we're in chapter 20 tonight, so open your Bibles and let's go to the Old Testament book of Numbers again, this this book that has been filled with murmuring and complaining and rebellion against really not just Moses and Aaron, the leaders, but against the Lord. Uh, tonight we come to one of the saddest chapters in Numbers. In fact, this could be very well, be, apart from the crucifixion of Christ, the saddest chapter in the Bible, this chapter that we're going to look at tonight because it, it opens with the death of Moses' sister, Miriam. And then it closes with the death of Moses' brother, Aaron. And in between, in between, uh, after years of, of complaining and murmuring and the people whining in the ear of Moses, and possibly because of the, the pressure of, uh, of the death of a family member, Moses just loses it. This is the chapter where this humble man, and he's a very humble man, he doesn't really have an anger issue at all. He, he did murder an, an Egyptian, but that was many, many years ago. Uh, he's known as the most humble man in the Bible. He's walked with God for a long time, but, but I'll tell you what, he finally loses self-control uh, in this, this uh, chapter, which is a very uncharacteristic display publicly. He's going to get really mad at the people. He's going to go off verbally on them. Then he's going to be disobedient to God. And he's going to strike the rock. And because of those two acts, God is going to forbid him his dream of leading the children of Israel across the Jordan River and into the promised land. So that's what makes this chapter so unbelievably sad and I'll explain all of its little nuances as we go into it. But chapter 20 and 21 tell the sad story of the, the leadership, the sad story of the leadership and, and its trials. Let's pray and we'll jump right into our text tonight. Father, we're grateful to have our Bibles open before us and we're thankful for a cool sanctuary to sit and study your word. We're grateful, Lord, for the worship team who has come before us voluntarily, in most cases, to uh, lead us, Lord, to your throne. And tonight, Lord, we just want to turn our focus here to the word. There, we do know there's those sick among us, uh, James Lee in the hospital and Juan Romero, who's just had gallbladder surgery, Carol Northup, who's struggling with her uh, functioning or dysfunctioning kidneys, um, and, and many others, Lord, that are just struggling and sick, and we pray tonight, Lord, for them. Just members of our church body that are struggling physically, we pray that you would touch them and encourage them. The loss of uh, Daniel's brother, uh, death in the family for the Avila family. We just ask, God, that you would lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ tonight. Encourage their hearts, we pray. And Lord, as we turn our attention now to your word, speak to us. Speak to us, Lord, through these, this historical book. Help us to apply these things to our own lives. In Jesus we pray, amen. Let's read together, beginning in verse 1. Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. Now, you've heard that name before, Kadesh. So they've come back around to Kadesh. They started in Kadesh, now they're back to Kadesh. So they're wandering, and they're doing a big circuit. They've done it a couple of times. So here they are in Zin, in Kadesh, and Miriam died there at Kadesh, and she was buried. Now, there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against 
Moses and Aaron. And the people contended with Moses and spoke. If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought us up the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? Is it not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates? There's not even any vegetation. There's no water to drink. So Moses and Aaron, verse 6, went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. They go to pray. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together and speak to them, or speak, pardon me, to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock." and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted his hand, and he struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation... And their animals drank. Now, a couple things before we get deeply into this section here in chapter 20. Uh, This portion of the book of Numbers, we're kind of going to the last section or portion here of this book. This really is the history of the, the 38 years of wandering. And now they wandered back again to this place, Kadesh, to the time just before they're going to be led to the promised land. So, We're coming to the kind of the end of the wandering section of the book of Numbers, and we're going to move uh, through the last 10 chapters or so to the first two chapters of Joshua, which is really the next uh, book to study after Numbers, where Joshua now will lead the people into the promised land. So there's a lot of time that's been compressed now in these few chapters, 20 and 21, become this kind of a a broader view of many, many, many years that bring them up to about the 30th year of their, 38th year of their wandering through the the desert, the wilderness. And all of these chapters, chapter 20 through 36, are about the second generation of the Hebrews. So the first generation has been slowly dying off, just as God had said. And it was back in chapter 13 where the whole nation was at the same place, Kadesh, They got to Kadesh Barnea. They were right on the doorstep of of Moab or uh, where the Edomites, you'll see them mentioned tonight, the Edomites. And all they have to do is go through the country of Moab just a a, a few miles and then get to the Jordan and, and go into the land of Canaan, the promised land. But the last time they were there, some 38 years prior to this, they got to Kadesh. And you remember what happened. God said, pick 12 spies. In fact, the people wanted to spy out the land. So God says, okay, you want to go and see the land? Just one spy from each tribe. So there's 12 spies. And the 12 spies go into the land. They're there for a couple of months. They come back out of the land. Ten of those spies didn't believe the Lord. They said, the land, we're like grasshoppers in the land, remember? The the land is filled with giants. We're just little pipsqueaks. We're going to get squashed. There's no way we're going to live in this land. The ten spies gave a bad report. Two spies gave a good report, Caleb and Joshua. Caleb and Joshua are going to be allowed into the land, but the whole nation followed the ten spies and their unbelief, their unfaith. They had no faith. They, They turned away from God. God can't get us there. The land's too great. The giants are too big. And because they believed in that, remember, God's Judgment against them, we see it in chapter 14, 29. This generation will die in the desert, and it will be their children that I take into the land. So the whole generation had to die, apart from Moses and Aaron and Caleb and Joshua, those two faithful. And so for 38 years, they've been going through the wilderness, and they're slowly dying off, slowly dying off, slowly dying off, and Miriam dies. So now we've moved. That's what I mean. This whole section's been compressed. We've moved now to chapter 20, and we see the death of 
of Miriam here. They're back in the same place in Kadesh, but the difference is it's a different generation. The older generation has died. The unbelievers died. That's what makes this so remarkable because when you read the first few verses, they're saying the same things that their parents said. They have the same attitude that their parents had. It's, it's uncanny, but it's interesting. Again, we're, we moved to this place of 38 years in advance of the last time they were there at Kadesh, and we know that because in chapter 33, and I'll, you could turn there, but I'll throw it up behind me on the screen. It says, Then Aaron the priest went to Mount Hor at the command of the Lord, and he died there on, notice this, the 40th year. They wandered for how many years in the wilderness? 40 years. So this is the 40th year since this time they were in Kadesh. They came out of Egypt. They wandered 40 years, and they're about to go in. So they're about to go in. The first generation's dead, and now God's dealing with the last remnant, Miriam and Aaron. Why? Why does Miriam and Aaron die? What did Miriam and Aaron do a few chapters ago? What did they do to their brother Moses? They rebelled against him, didn't they? And so because of their disobedience, they're not allowed to go in either. Even though they had this status, family, they were the brother and sister of of the leader. They were leaders in and of themselves. But God, because of their disobedience and unbelief, won't let them go in. And we're going to see that happen even to poor Moses. That's what makes this one of the saddest chapters in the Bible. But notice again in verse 1, we have the death of Miriam. The children of Israel, the whole congregation came to to uh, Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. So Miriam dies there in Kadesh. Again, meaning that many, many years have gone by. They've come back to Kadesh, the place where they originally rejected God in their unbelief with the ten unfaithful spies. So Miriam's death now is really an important fulfillment of God's judgment against all that generation that had died. They've come to the point where they've all died. They're about ready to go in, but God still has to take care of these unbelievers here, those that caused trouble for his leaders, uh, Moses and Aaron, and particularly Aaron because he rebelled against his brother. But here Miriam uh, dies, and she's a really interesting person. As you recall, when we were studying the book of Exodus, we got a picture of Miriam. She is Moses' older sister, It's Miriam who puts with her mom, Jochebed, as you recall, puts little Moses in the ark. Remember the ark? The little woven basket with pitch on it. Puts him in the reeds and in the current so that he'll slowly flow down, preserving his life from the edict of Pharaoh, which was to kill all the Jewish boys. And so out of disobedience, Jochebed and Miriam. Miriam is the one that followed the little ark. As the mother, Jochebed, stayed behind, Miriam was going through their bulrushes, and she was following the little ark to make sure it was safe. It's Miriam, this, this woman that made sure that, that the ark got to where it needed to go. She was, they were hoping that it would get to the Pharaoh's daughter, and that's exactly where God led that little ark. It was Miriam who then persuaded the Pharaoh's daughter, who was bathing there at the Nile River, she persuaded Miriam with her words, persuaded the Pharaoh's daughter to go get one of the Hebrew slaves, thinking her mom, right, Jochebed, I'll go get one of them, and she can nurse the little baby. And so the Pharaoh goes along with a plan because of Miriam's convincing and God's sovereignty, obviously. When the children of Israel many, many, many years later are at this shore of the Red Sea with the advancing army of Pharaoh that's going to come and kill them all, two million, by the way, at the Red Sea. Moses stood there with his rod, the Red Sea parted, the children of Israel went across in dry or on dry land, as you recall. And when they got to the other side, they all turned around, they climbed up, you know, the shore line, and they looked back, and that's when the whole sea came crashing down on Pharaoh's army decimating the Egyptian army. And who was it that led worship there at the shore? It was Miriam. 
the horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. She writes this really glorious worship song, and she leads the nation singing about the triumph of God, Miriam. Miriam also in chapter 12, as I've already mentioned, challenged the leadership of her brother. And in that act, God's first judgment against her, she became instantly leprous, as you recall. And Moses gets on his knees like he always does. He goes right to the Lord. He prays and he begs God to cleanse his, his sister, which God did after, after a, a portion of time. Now, here in verse 2, Miriam has died, Miriam has been buried, and now the people, notice in verse 2, I've titled this section, Like Father, Like Son, just because of the parents. The parents had said the same things. They complained, and now the kids, verse 2, there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered, gathered together against Moses. And if only we had died when our brethren died in, before the Lord. Where have you heard that before? And then why, verse 4, have you brought us the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness that we and our animals should die here? I mean, we had grapes and pomegranates in Egypt. We had everything that we wanted. That's what he's saying, or they're saying, complaining there to, to Moses. Again, these, this is the second generation of people, and they didn't, as they say, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, right? I mean, that's these people. And it's unbelievable. Think about this. For 38 years, they've gathered this white, lovely, honey-flavored substance that's on the ground. What was it called? Manna that God provided every day, except for Sunday, right? You had to get enough on Saturday. You, can't, you couldn't work on Sunday. And so they had this wonderful food. And then every day they had a cloud protecting them from the harsh sun. Every night they had this heavenly flame that was above the tabernacle, above the tent of meeting, the, the nightlight of protecting God's people. They've been provided for wherever they've gone in this desolate land, food and water. God has provided, provided, provided. And here they are complaining again. This is the second generation again, by the way. What is God doing? God is teaching them to learn to walk by faith. When you read about the children of Israel and compare it to your life, not to American life or some other culture, but to your life, you discover that God will bring points in your life where you have to exercise faith, where you can't see it, you don't understand it, but you have to exercise faith and take that step of faith, trusting and believing God to get you to the promised land right? He's, he's promised to get you to heaven, and he wants you to live a holy and righteous life, but you have to trust him, and you have to, and, and have you ever failed, dare I ask? And as we fail again, and again, and again, and again, God gives us grace, God's grace, and he forgives us again, and again, and he's teaching, and training, and by the time you get to be 60, you should know better, but we don't always. God brings us through these places to teach and train us. He's doing that with these, the second generation, teaching and training them that he's with them, that he's going to provide for them. But now they're thirsty again. They come against Moses again. Why have you brought us here? There was plenty of water in Egypt for the, the, our livestock. They're, they're no different than their parents, like father, like son. Again, the need for water was real. But the response from Israel is filled with unbelief and accusation against their leader. It's hard to be a leader, by the way. Whether you lead a family and have your wife and children follow, as the scriptures say, or you work at a, a job where you have a leader and you submit to their authority, or in a church where God has put us a leader and you're to follow and submit, it's hard to be a leader. People don't like it. That's why I put up those things tonight. It's like you walk in and it's like rebellion immediately. It's like, how dare that person put that thing there? I mean, seriously, that's, that's the heart. That's our heart, right? We need to learn and we need to grow and we need to submit. I mean, Moses, he's been listening to these people grind and whine and complain for 40 years. They continue to complain and pout. all about a lack of faith, and I've, I have in my notes here, 
when you want a house or a car or a new job and God closes the door? Do you move forward by faith and believe that God has something else or do you complain to everybody? God likes them more and he doesn't like me. And or do you say, well, Lord, you closed the door. I wonder what exciting thing is going to happen. I wonder what you're going to lead me. What, where are you going to open the door, Lord, and when is that going to happen? We, we need to learn to pout less and complain less. Amen? Amen? I cast my vote there. Now, unbelief does the same thing to us that it did to these people. Unbelief brought an incredibly bad attitude to these people, and they found fault with the leadership, and they found fault with God. They forgot the promise of God. They forgot the, the details of God's promises to get them there that he had given to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, the father of these people. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. These are the children of Israel. They're living out this promise. God is leading them, and he's doing it miraculously. Food, water, cloud, fire, meat. He even provided meat when they whined about that. We need to remember that God has a plan, that God will direct and God will lead if we'll just be faithful people. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 comes to mind. You probably know, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and in all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct you. Trusting in the Lord. So Moses, he's facing the threat of mutiny again with his second generation. And what does he do? What does he do? He falls on his face again because that's Moses. He always does that. He goes right to the Lord. Verse 6, he went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle that fast. He goes immediately into prayer, which is another really great learning point for you and I. When something happens, we need to go to prayer. We need to go right to the Lord. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Moses and Aaron, they come face to face with this new generation, this second generation of, of people here, and they were just as unbelieving as the old generation was. And they also know that it's the, the people's unbelief. Moses and Aaron know that it's their unbelief that is going to cause them to die. You, you, you guys don't even know what you're doing right now. You're complaining. So they go right before the Lord because they're going to intercede. Remember, that's Moses' great responsibility. He was the mediator between God and the people of God, Moses. And so he's mediating immediately. He's, he's pouring, God, don't kill them. God, uh, they're, they're disobedient, I know, but, but God, uh, be, be gracious to them. Have mercy on them. And so we see that intercessory prayer ministry that Moses does. He goes immediately from the people to the door of the tabernacle. Now, in verse 7, notice God's direct command. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, take the rod, you and your brother Aaron gather to the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Very simple. God's very direct and tells them exactly what to do, and then the water's going to flow. It'll come out of the rock. They'll all have something to drink for them and their animals. Again, notice that God told Moses to take the rod. He didn't tell Moses to use the rod. He said, take the rod. The rod was a symbol of his authority. Whenever he uses the rod, he didn't whack people with it. He didn't smack people down with it. It was just a, a symbol of his authority. And so he was to take that rod but not use it and the water would be provided if Moses would speak to the rock. Now, back at Mount Sinai, you might remember that God told Moses to strike the rock, and, and he did. And out of obedience, Moses went up to a rock. He struck the rock. Water came out. That was back in, in, at Mount Sinai where God had commanded him to do it. This time, God says, speak to the rock. And he was supposed to hold the rod as authority. So he was supposed to walk up to the rock and speak to it. Water come forth. That was all God had told him to do, to speak to the rock with the, that rod. The, again, the rod was a symbol of authority, but Moses disobeys. Moses 
has a lapse in his obedience. I'm calling it Moses' disobedience. Verse 9, so Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, now here's an interesting thing. You can go online and you can find out where they actually believe this is. Um, it's, on, it's in Midian. This fascinating video, uh, new archaeological evidence found in the last 20 years where there's this actual rock in the same location. You can see it's a massive stone. It'd be like going to J-Tree, if you've ever done any rock climbing in J-Tree, Joshua Tree right out here in the desert. Awesome place to go take the kids. Not in the summertime, though. It's probably 115 out there today. But in the fall, I used to take my kids out there. We'd rock climb and top rope and stuff with my boys. When I, But J-Tree. And there's these big rock formations that go straight up. Big rocks, solid rocks. And you can go online and you can see where they believe this is, Kadesh. It's in Midian, not in, not in the Sinai Peninsula, but across the Red Sea in what's known as Midian. It, it really follows the, the, the biblical description of the geographical location. But it's a massive rock. It goes towering hundreds of feet in the air. But the interesting thing about the rock that you see today in the video is it's got a big split right in the middle of it. Fascinating. You're all going to go home and check that out. You should. It's, it's fascinating. I believe that you have two million people around. Moses isn't hitting a little rock like this. There's two million people around. They can't see. So Moses goes up to this massive rock, and he strikes this rock out of disobedience to the Lord. He disobeys God's direct command to speak to the rock. Moses took the rod before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses, verse 9, and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said, notice what he says. Again, this is uncharacteristic of Moses. Here now, you rebels. Wow. Sorry. Wake you up. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? And then Moses lifted his hand and he struck the rock, notice, twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation, their animals, drank. So Moses disobeys God twice here. Two things that he did against God's command. He spoke to the people, scolding them, which, by the way, they deserved, right? It's like, man, about time, Moses, you gave them a piece of your mind. That's why it's so uncharacteristic. Moses is very humble. He's a very meek man. He did not have anger issues. You heard pastors say that. I, I just I don't believe it because this is, this is what makes this incident so sad because Moses only failed when he was a, you know, the first 40 years of his life when he killed the Egyptian. Then he went running. 40 years of his life he spent in the dead. Then when he was 80 is when he starts to lead these people. He's 120 years old now. He has had it up to here with these people. So there's two things I think emotionally going on in his life as well as his disobedience here and he's exasperated and he's angry and he beats the rock here's my application tonight I think we've all acted this way we've acted emotionally out of exasperation or anger with your wife or your husband maybe your children you speak to that rock I'm going to speak to my husband <laughs> that's a bad plan Ladies, bad plan. First Peter 3, you can win your husband without conversation, right? It never works. More words, it doesn't work. I mean, don't raise your hand because it'll expose your... But it, I'm telling you, it's the truth. I've been counseling for almost 40 years now, Christians. I, I've done it again and again. It's always the same. The husband responds to the wife. The wife responds to the husband. Then it escalates and gets worse and worse and ugly. It gets ugly. And so it's really important to understand we're not supposed to speak to the rock when it's your husband or when it's your wife or maybe your kids or coworkers, no matter who it is. We need to trust the Lord. We just need to trust the Lord. Again, this whole episode reminds me that Moses was just like me in his disobedience, and he's not trusting the Lord, and notice, he lashes out in anger, verse 11, then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. Now, if Moses had spoken to the rock, 
then the miracle would have pointed the people to the amazing, miraculous work of God. But it didn't. Moses, striking the rock, took glory from God because it was his effort in striking the rock. And so he takes the glory of God. He takes away from God's plan of just doing a miraculous work without man. And he rebukes the Hebrews, and he brings attention to himself in two ways. By shooting off his mouth, which he wasn't supposed to do. He's supposed to speak the rock, he spoke to the people. And then he wasn't supposed to strike the rock, and he struck it. In Psalm 106, we get a, a, a little picture. Notice Psalm 106. They angered him also at the waters of Mirabah. You'll see that name tonight. Mir means strife. So that it went... Uh, it, it went, uh, boy, what's that? Oh, went ill with Moses on account of them because they rebelled against his spirit so that he spoke rashly with his lips. And Moses, that was uncharacteristic of Moses to, to lash out, to speak out that way. So Moses, he, he kind of took charge himself. He's a leader, but he, he, he stepped into the realm of God by speaking this harsh word and by striking the rock. And then he says there, verse 10 at the end, we, we, he said, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Again, Moses spoke as if God couldn't do it. God needs my help. God needs me to help him to get this work done and get this thing accomplished. Sound familiar? And he struck the rock and he spoke out. It really speaks a lot to Moses. In this one instance, this humble man has pride, and it's his pride that gets the better of him. Notice here in verse 12, his disbelief. Here's the reason. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me. So here's Moses, this man that has walked with God, he spoke with God, he's seen God. Remember, he wanted to see God, and God hit him in a rock and hit his face so he wouldn't die, and, and God walked before him. Didn't really see God. He's represented God. He's been humble. He's prayed. He's interceded. He's done all the work of mediation that he could do. But now he's over-magnified his position before God. He's, he's kind of taken that place, and, and it's his disbelief. You did not believe me, God says, to hollow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. God wants his servant to be like him. You and I are to be like Jesus Christ. Jesus was meek and Jesus was holy and never is the child of God to hold up a, a sign that says God hates anybody. And never. That is not God's way. We aren't to do that. I, I think God's people can protest, but we better do it peacefully. We better do it God's way. We better represent God in, our, in grace and mercy in everything that we do because you can see it in Moses' life here. And notice the outcome. Therefore, you shall not bring the assembly into the land which I've given them. Can you imagine the, the sick feeling that Moses would have in his stomach at this point? I, I, I've been living. I'm, I'm 120 years old. I've been living for this. You promised me this. I didn't even want to do this, Lord. Can you imagine? He's worked so hard to get to this place, and because of his unbelief, God is not going to let him in the land, just like the rest of the people. God's leader can be judged like anyone else. Dare I say James McDonald? Dare I say Bob Coy or any number of, of preachers or any worship leader or any usher, just because you're serving the Lord in some capacity, missionary, doesn't mean you're above God's standard. God holds everyone to that standard. In fact, he holds the leader to a higher standard. I'm going to show you that in a moment. Moses' sinful attitude and action was rooted in his unbelief at that moment. He was sick and tired of those people, and it, instead of trusting the Lord, he inserted himself into the whole situation here. He didn't believe God when the Lord told him, just speak to the rock. 
I just want you to speak to that rock and be an example of the believer with for me. Hold the rod, symbol of authority, speak to the rock. But Moses yelled at the people and he struck the rock twice in disobedience and disbelief. So he misrepresented God. Jesus came meek and lowly. He overturned the tables of the money changers in the temple two times, once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the very end of his ministry. And that was a righteous indignation. He explained it all because the people had turned the worship house of God into a den of what? Thieves. And so his righteous indignation, he turned the tables over and then he made a whip out of some cords that he found and he chased these unholy people out of the temple. And he was mad. But it was righteous anger. This is unrighteous anger for the leader of God. He loses it. He strikes out at the people verbally and, and strikes the rock. Moses didn't reflect the heart of God. He's the mediator between God and man, and he's blown it now. God holds his leader to a higher standard and that's the principle that we see. That I believe that in the church of God, God holds the leadership to a higher standard. And we need to keep that standard. If you're serving in any capacity, you need to keep that standard. The interesting responsibility, you might call it unfortunate, but I don't see it that way uh, because I was raised in a church where I was taught the scriptures, so I know the scriptures and I know what the scriptures say. So I'm not afraid to implement the scriptures when it's public. In other words, somebody might come to me and say, so-and-so did this, so-and-so did that. And what I say is, do you have witnesses? Well, no. Well, then wait till the Lord exposes it. If it's something that's so uh, dramatic It'll get exposed real quick. We, we would know about it. But if it's something that we really don't know, then God is going to expose that. When I was growing up at Calvary's, you know, 35 years ago, Romaine was Pastor Chuck's assistant. Some of you probably have no clue. Sounds like lettuce to you. <laughs> Romaine was Pastor Chuck's faithful assistant pastor who was a Marine drill instructor at Camp Pendleton. Little five foot, I think he was about five four. I talked to him a few times, shook his hand a few times, sat in his classes for assistant pastors that he called a bunch of lame wimps. You know, he, I mean, seriously, walked into his class. Remember, there were about 200 of us down at, at uh, Calvary Chapel in Vista back in the the late 80s, early 90s. It was late 80s, actually. We were at a pastor's conference, and Pastor John took... So all the pastors went in with Pastor Chuck into the sanctuary, and about 200 of us assistant pastors went into this, this uh, large uh, venue. It was probably their fellowship hall. <laughs> and we sat down there, and Romaine's standing up there, and he's grinning, happy. He loves the Lord. He's a very happy man. And he looks at his watch, and it was... 10 o'clock, time starts that class. He looked at the watch, and he says, you guys think you're assistants to your pastor? Do you know where the toilet paper is in your church? When was the last time you helped clean up that spit up from that baby in the nursery? If you're not willing to do that, get out of here right now. That's the way he started our pastor's conference. And then, and then listen to this, right in the middle of that, a late assistant pastor came down the middle aisle. I was sitting about the third row. He came up, and there wasn't any places in the back. Nobody wanted to sit next to Romaine. So this guy had to walk all the way down, all the way down, and Romaine stopped right after he said, and he watches this guy come up, and he watches him sit down, and he says, are you an assistant pastor? And the guy was like looking at all of us, and we're all looking at him, <laughs> and he didn't want to answer. He gave him the riot act right in front of us. He was a marine drill instructor. Instructor, But at the same time, Romaine was one of the most sensitive counselors because there are two people in our fellowship over the years that had marriage counseling with him, and they said it was wonderful. As a disobedient man, I had this one brother tell me, I was a disobedient husband, 
in my 20s, and I got the riot act from a Romanian. I'll never forget it. And, and he gave me the riot act, then he gave me God's word, and then he prayed for me. And he goes, I'll never forget that moment. <laughs> he put the fear of Romaine in him. <laughs> but it's important for us to understand that God calls us as leaders in the church. He holds us to a higher, stricter standard. James 3, notice this verse behind me. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive, uh, notice, stricter judgment. I believe that if you're called to pastor, you better be called. If you play around with this position, and we've seen this happen just recently with one of my favorite radio Bible teachers, it'll come back, and God will judge. We need to be careful and understand that. Moses, though, is not only the humble leader of the nation, he's the mediator. He's the illustration of the coming Messiah. He's the, he's the picture, I've said this over and over in our study, the picture of Jesus for this nation. He's the mediator between God and man, just as Jesus is the better mediator between God and man. And Moses here fails and becomes a, a real skewed picture of the redemptive work of Jesus. In the New Testament, it's clear that the water-providing, life-giving rock was a picture of Jesus Christ. Notice Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, behind me on the screen, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So this rock represents Christ. The first rock that Moses struck was a rock in the desert. The second rock was a representation of the grace of God for a thirsty people. And Moses was not to strike it, and he did out of disobedience and out of disbelief. So when he did that, that unnecessary and unrighteous work, the unbelief in Moses' heart was judged. That's why this is the sad chapter. Now notice in verse 14, we get back on the road again. So again, lots of history scrunched up in this little bit, but Moses, Moses sent... Moses. <laughs> <laughs> he sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. So Moses doesn't even skip a beat here. What are we doing now? We're going to keep moving. We're going to move toward the promised land. So they're in Kadesh, and they're going to cross a border into what's known as Moab or Edom. Thus saith to your brother Israel, you know all the hardship that has befallen us, how our fathers went down to Egypt, and we dwelt in Egypt a long time. And it, the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. When we cried out to the Lord, we heard our voice, or he heard our voice, and the angel sent and brought us up out of Egypt. Now here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your border. Please let us pass from your country, through your country we will not pass through fields or vineyards. We won't drink your wine from your wells. We, we will go along the king's highway, kind of around the main cities. We'll not turn aside to the right or the left until we pass through your territory. So here's this note that Moses writes and then gives to the messenger that goes right to the king of Edom there. It's just a request to get through their land. We have food. God's providing for us. We'll have water. We're not going to stop in your land. We're not going to take anything. We're not going to make a mess. Although there's two million people, they've got to get through this land. So he sends this letter. But notice the request there to your brother, Israel. That's because Jacob had a brother, twins. Remember, Jacob and who? Esau. Edom. Esau. Esau and his offspring are the Edomites, the Arabs today. The children of Israel, the Hebrews, the Jews today have a big problem with the Edomites, the Arabs today. They continue to have this same struggle. They write a letter, can we come through your land? And they basically have got to this place a couple of times. They've already sent spies in there, but that was years ago. Then Edom said, verse 18, you shall not pass through my land lest I come out against you with a sword. I'll come and kill you guys. Don't come here. So the children of Israel said, we, 
We're going to go by the highway. We're going to go around. We'll go the freeway. And if I or my livestock drink any of your water, then I'm going to pay for, for it. Let me pass through on foot, nothing more. And he said, you shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with many men and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. So the Edomite here wouldn't let the children of Israel in this two million person uh, uh, camp is moving, this mass of people, the Edomites won't let them come through. So it makes the journey for the Israelites just that much tougher. They're going to have to go way out of their way and spend more time, another year or two, just to get to the border to go around Edom. When you look at a map, I should have brought you one, but it's Moab. Now, Moab and that desert, which would be now Iraq. So they're, they're right there on the border they can't get in to make their short little passage into Canaan. They have to go around now. And uh, the Edomites, this, this deed of the Edomites was never forgotten. Here's the verse in Amos 1, verse 11. Notice this verse. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because he pursued his brother with a sword. Who was his brother? The children of Israel, Jacob. And that's these people, the two million people there. Jacob, remember Jacob, wrestled. He became Israel. The children of Israel are these people. And they, it was this conflict between Jacob and Esau. And Amos speaks about it again. He pursued his brother with a sword and cast off all pity. His anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. And that wrath is, is forever, isn't it? It's still even today. So this chapter, again, begins with the death of Miriam. We see the saddest part of the judgment of, of uh, Moses. And now we end with the death of Aaron, verse 22. And the children of Israel, the whole congregation, journeyed from Kadesh. And they came to Mount Hor. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people. That's a real interesting way to say he's going to die. Notice, He'll be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. So God is now judging Aaron, who is the high priest. He's been the leader, but he's judged because he went against his brother, and he rebelled against him. So they're at this marker here, Mount Hor which really ends this 38 years, or we're getting really close to the 40th year where they're going to go in, in these last chapters here that we're going to look. But, but think about this, 38 years of wandering, 38 years that are wasted, 38 years of, of complaining and whining when God provided every day and every night, whining and complaining. These are known as the wasted years. That's why you hear about the children of Israel wandering. Why did they have to wander so long? Because these are the wasted years. They, they didn't walk in faith and obedience. They walked in disbelief and whining and complaining about the circumstances that they were in. The wasted years of surviving in the desert. The wasted years of letting the old man die. Remember Paul says in the New Testament, let the old man die. With all of his lusts and all of his ways. Listen, Christian, don't, don't waste your life cast off every sin that besets you. Let go of all those things, all the sin in your life. The BC days and all of its stuff, get rid of it. Let the old man die. Don't, don't wander for 38 years in your sin. Live for Jesus. Love his word. Walk in obedience. Walk in faith. Stop your complaining. Don't give your pastor heartburn. You don't do that. These were wasted years. Verse 25, take Aaron and Eliezer, his son, bring them up to Mount Hor, and take off all of Aaron's garments and put them on his son, Eliezer. For Aaron shall be, here's the quote here, gathered to his people and die there. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded, and they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of the congregation. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments, 
That would be all the outer garments. Remember the priestly garments, the ephod and this, the, the robe and the outer and inner tunic, the hat, everything that he wore that represented God before the people. And he takes all of these things off and puts them on Eleazar, his son, and Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. And when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, their leader, their spiritual leader, all the house of Israel mourned for Aaron for 30 days. Now, I want to end on a positive note here because there really is a positive note. Notice I've made mention of that little phrase in verse 26, Aaron shall be gathered to his people there. That's a beautiful poetic way. It's a lovely Old Testament speak for the saint who dies, the believer who dies, the, the man of faith. Aaron really was a man of faith. He blew it, just like you and I, but, but he was a man of faith. And it's a beautiful way to say that he died. He was gathered to his people. We see it over and over. Let me give you a couple real quick examples. In Genesis 25, then Aaron breathed his last and died in a good old age, a man full of years, and was gathered to his people. Genesis 35, Isaac breathed his last and died, and he was gathered to his people. Genesis 49, when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. For the faithful believer, we're gathered to our people. Have you as a Christian known a grandparent, a brother or sister in the Lord that prayed for you, that you loved dearly, that was in this fellowship, or maybe someone that you've known over the years that, that died? They, every person will die. Everyone born will die. It's universal. Our days are short. They're numbered. It's like our days are a vapor. We're all going to die. But for those that die in Christ, we're gathered to our what? Our people. It's a beautiful, beautiful view of the, the death of the believer. For the believer, death is victory, 1 Corinthians 15. For the believer, death is a good thing. It's moving from this place of hardship and pain and suffering and going to the promised land. Death for the believer is a victorious, it's a beautiful thing. And you and I should live a life that honors the Lord out of obedience and by faith so that others around us, when we die, they go to our memorial and they stand up in front of the congregation and say, you know what, this is what I know. This, this person wasn't perfect. None of us are. But you know what? They love the Lord. And they spoke about Jesus and they shared and led me to Christ and they prayed for me in my hardship and difficulties. And one of these days, I'm going to die and I'm going to be gathered with my people. It's a beautiful future that God's provided for each of us. Amen. Father, thank you for the word tonight.